Over the last three years, under Al's guidance and teaching, we studied what is called expository teaching. It's beginning in a book, starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and going through the book. There's no room for error. There's no room for taking passages out of context or giving them meanings that they do not uh, pertain to. As I take this pulpit, I will continue that teaching. And with that in mind, if you would turn to 1 Peter, I believe that's on page 1067. It's just, just before 2 Peter. The reason that I chose Peter was not a very great spiritual Discerning, It was not a great moving of the Holy Spirit. Over the three years of Al's teaching, we have studied a lot of Paul's writings. We have studied James. And we have studied John. So all that was left was Peter. So I decided to take Peter. We are just going to look at an introduction this morning at Peter himself. In verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in a world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And that's the passage I'm going to preach on today. I will start out by giving you a date. July 19th, 64 A.D. And the city of Rome began burning on the morning of the 19th. The city of Rome was a very narrow, streeted city. All the structures, except for temples and monuments and that of the wealthy, were made out of wood. The tenements were usually multi-floored, multi-family. On July the 19th, Rome began burning. Rome began burning at such a pace that they did not have what we would call fire departments. They did not have sprinkler systems, and in large portions there was no warning that it was coming, for it was set by man. The fire burned for three days and three nights unchecked, without so much as a cup of water thrown on it. On the fourth and fifth day, Rome had burned so bad that it was a little harder for the fire to find fuel, and they were starting to get a handle on getting it contained. But what was happening was, is when they would get one portion of this fire contained, another fire would start by man. There was tremendous loss of life. There was tremendous loss of lifestyle and culture. The temple of Luna was destroyed. The temple of Jupiter Major was destroyed. The shrine of Vesta was destroyed. And so was the great altar of Rome. Protection of the people were lost and fell prey to the same. All things that people would possess and praise and look for stability in their life was lost. This was all done under the, an emperor named Nero. And history shows us that Nero is the one who started it. Started the fire that burned Rome. Beyond anything we can imagine, beyond the San Francisco fire, beyond the Cripple Creek fires, beyond anything you could imagine, Rome was burned, decimated. By every definition, Nero was a maniac. Nero had a lust to build. And for Nero to build, he had to destroy so this is why Nero started to fire. This is the saying that you hear that Rome burned while Nero fiddled. There are historians that tell us that he sat on a tire, the tower of Messina, overlooking the Roman city and watched it burn through the night and through the day and was inspired to write songs on what he was witnessing. There was such great loss and destruction to humanity, to culture, to lifestyles, to businesses, that the people were in a state of shock. They had no idea. 
But gradually that shock turned to anger. And as that anger developed, it became deadly. Many were believing that their emperor had started this fire. And Nero sought counsel on who to blame the fire on. He came with a, a very brilliant conclusion. The Jews at this time were very much hated and slandered. But the Jews were very prosperous. But there was a group that was attached to these Jews that he could blame this on. These people were called Christians. Christians were a little less than Jews because the Christians for the right money could be, or the Jews for the right money could be enticed to worship the Roman gods or emperor worship, but the Christians would not. The Christians would not pay homage to the emperor, would not pay homage to the Romans' gods. They were kind of an odd sort of people. They had a tradition that was called, uh, they went by the name calling it as the Lord's Supper. And rumor had it among the citizens of Rome that they were eating and drinking the flesh and the blood. And rumor started that this flesh and blood had to be that of babies and Gentiles. They also had this tradition called the Christian kiss of love, which had to be just the beginning steps of homosexuality or orgies. Also, some of the wives of prominent Roman men had fallen prey to this Messiah that the Christians talked of. And it was causing division in the home because these wives instead of being submissive to their husbands, would not bow down to the Roman gods. Children of the families were accepting this Messiah that the Christians taught, taught of. And it was causing strife among the families. But these Christians also had told, foretold of a time when the world would be judged by fire. And Nero picked a very good choice. From that time until the fall of the Roman Empire, there was wholesale slaughter and persecution of Christians. Roman historian history teaches us that Nero would take Christians and roll them in pitch and run a stake up their back and set them on fire in his garden while he had a party. To train his hunting dogs to hunt, he would take carcasses of the animals that he wanted to hunt and tie them around Christians and have the Christians run through the woods so that the dogs would chase them and kill them. Lynching was common. Lynching is basically, you are a Christian, I shall kill you, and you need not a trial. Crucifixion became common. In verse 1 of this epistle, this area that Peter is writing to, the strangers of the world who are scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all provinces. They're not cities. They're provinces in an area that we know as Turkey today. And Rome, it was part of the Roman Empire. Many theologians and scholars and writers of commentaries on this write this as the epistle of suffering. In 1.6 of 1 Peter, Peter tells us, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have suffered grief of all kinds of trials. In 2.20, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow. 3.13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. 4.12, Peter continues, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. 5.10, and after, a, after you have suffered for a little while, 
will restore himself, will himself restore you, make you strong and firm and steadfast. It was a time of tremendous suffering for Christians. I hear today in our society, a lot of organizations are concerned about our religious freedoms and the loss of things that we take for granted. And as I study through history and I prepare for this message and study this book, we don't know suffering. They used to have a game where they would take Christians and tie them to the horns of bulls and have them run around in arenas to see if they could impale. The bull could work the Christian off the horns and then finally impale him. And this is all because of his faith. This suffering at this time would eventually catch the Apostle Peter. Church tradition and history says that Peter and his wife were arrested at the same time. And to uh, try to convince Peter to renounce his faith and give up this Jesus teaching, they crucified his wife before him so he could watch her die in agony. But as I study this epistle, I see that this epistle gives me instruction on how to live victoriously, no matter what the hostilities, and never lose heart. I see that it will solidify my faith so I will never waver. It will take me to a place that I would not become bitter under what these men were going through. This epistle, Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, shows us where our hope is, shows us what our salvation is, and continues on and on a number of times to remind us of Christ's return. But not only in this epistle do I learn how to deal with suffering, but there's some massive teachings on God in here. As we go through this book in the next months, we will learn on foreknowledge. We will learn about election. We will see the significance of the blood of Christ and how precious it truly is. We will also look at our eternal inheritance. But there's also ways to look at proof of our faith. We will look at salvation. We will also look at the second coming of our Lord and Savior. But there's ex exhortations for us to be holy as God is holy. Also will teach us on the new birth. The pure milk of the Word and how it provides growth in a Christian's life. Spiritual growth is dealt with in this book. We will see that we are a holy priesthood. And what does that mean? We will see our responsibilities to government. We will see marriage relationships. The responsibility of the woman and the responsibility of a man. That's always a wonderful topic, isn't it? Why we need to be able to defend our faith. We will look at baptism, humility, and how struggles of life will perfect your faith. But today we will look at Peter. Peter the Apostle. Peter the Leader. In the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are four lists of the twelve disciples that Christ had. Actually, John's not one of them. In Matthew 10, you see the list of the twelve. In Mark 3, you see a list of the twelve. In Luke 6 and Acts 1, you see the list of the twelve. In all of these lists, Peter's name is always first. The other names will be in random order, but Peter's name is always first. Peter is an apostle. You notice here that Peter says, Peter, an apostle. If you look at Paul's writings, you see that in a number of his writings in Romans, um, in Galatians and Philippians, he defends, in, in Corinthians too, he defends his apostleship. But not Peter. Peter says, I'm an apostle. Why is that? Because he was known. He was the leader of the twelve. 
When Paul went to Jerusalem to seek counsel, to see that the race that he was running was that of a true, true race, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, who did he seek? He sought Peter. Always Peter. An apostle is called face to face by Christ. There are those today who call themselves apostles. As I continue on, you'll see that they, they lie. An apostle has seen the resurrected Christ. An apostle in Ephesians 2.20 are for the laying of the foundation of the church. They also studied under direct revelation from God. They are the writers of the New Testament or someone directly associated with an apostle. They were the framers of what we call the doctrine of Jesus Christ. They were the teachers that began the divine truth. They are the ones by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that give us the New Testament. In Acts, we see that they said that the disciples of the apostles were devoted to their teaching. They wanted to know their teaching. But another thing you see in the, the apostles is that they were an examples of virtue in all aspects of their life. All aspects of their life. What they talked, they walked without hindrance. In Ephesians 3, 5 and Revelation 18, 20, they are referred to as the holy apostles. Second Corinthians 12 tells us that God confirmed their teachings by signs and wonders and mighty deeds. This validated them as true teachers. We do not need this validation now. We have the New Testament. If a man claims, as they do in some in this day and age, that they can do miracles, but yet are walking out of what doctrine teaches, do we truly believe that God would validate false teaching? In Revelations 21, verse 14, Speaking of the apostles, as we studied this, we've seen the new city of Jerusalem. The apostles have a reward above rewards. It says of the new city of Jerusalem, there's 12 foundations. And on these 12 foundations are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. With that passage of Scripture, I see... No new apostles. For there are but 12 foundations and there are but 12 apostles to the Lamb. But I want to look at the leader of the apostles, the writer of this epistle, 1 Peter. Peter. The Gospels are full of Peter. Two things that I have found absolutely phenomenal about Peter. The only person in the New Testament gospel records mentioned more than Peter is Christ our Lord. The Lord spoke more to Peter in both praise and blame than anyone else, any other disciples. Do you understand that? Peter was in constant communication with God, with Jesus Christ. No disciple more directly or poignantly admonished, was admonished more than Peter. And no disciple admonished the Lord but Peter. No one more boldly confessed and encouraged our Lord than Peter. But no one intruded, interfered, or tempted our Lord like Peter either. Jesus, speaking with Peter, gave him approval and praises and blessings that he'd give none of the other disciples. But he also said harsher things to Peter, except for Judas, than any of the other disciples. 
Peter is always the first one in the gospel record that was chosen. Peter was the key to the church. Peter was God's man. Peter had all the makings that God wanted to be the leader and to get the church started in its infancy. We can look at Peter and see how the Lord shaped him. This outline I have given you, you see Simon, you see Simon Peter, and you see Peter. And those three names, we can see how God shaped this man, the rock. Peter was a spokesman for the twelve. It was always Peter who asked difficult questions. In Matthew 15, about the sayings of the parables, Peter, Peter asked, what does that mean? Peter is the one who said, Lord, how often should I forgive? Seven times? And Jesus said, seven times seventy. Peter is the one who watched God calm the seas, drag coins out of fishes. He's seen him raise the dead. He's seen him make the lame walk. And looked at Christ in Matthew 19 and says, what reward do we get for leaving all that we had? This is the brilliance of Peter. Peter is the one in Mark 11 who asked, Why did the fig tree die, Lord? He was the one who was kept asking the questions about the signs of the approaching times. Peter is the one that the Jews came and asked, does your master pay his taxes? Peter is the one in the crowd when the lady reached out and touched Christ's robe. Who touched you? Peter is the one that says, keep the children back. Peter is the one who was always asking questions and is always the spokesman. But this is what a leader is. A leader asks questions. A leaders make things happen. Right or wrong. Leaders make things happen. So I would ask you to bear with myself, for I have not been perfected either. His name was Simon. Simon, son of Jonas, or John. He had a brother named Andrew. He was a fisherman. That was his trade. He actually had two fishing partners named John and James. But he was a fisherman by trade. He was married. That may go against the grain of the Catholic Church, but 1 Corinthians 9, 5, speaking of taking along your believing wife as the apostle Cephas does. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. Also speaks of his mother-in-law. It's hard to have a mother-in-law and not have a wife. <clears throat> Simon's name was changed to Peter. The Lord changed his name. As I shared with you, Cephas is Aramaic. Both Peter and Cephas mean stone or rock. You see that in time and through the study of the Gospels, that there are times when they'll call him Simon. Uh, point one, Simon, his secular identity. Anything that belonged earthly to Peter was always referred to Simon's. In Mark 1.29, it was Simon's house. In Acts 1, Cornelius was told to go to Simon's house to find this man. In Luke 4.38, it speaks of Simon's wife's mother. See, you thought I was kidding you. In Luke 5, 3, it speaks of Simon's boat. He was, they were going to go fishing. And in Luke 5, 10, uh, his fishing partners, which were John and James. This was his earthly identification. This was the man before Jesus called him. 
In that same passage in Luke 5, Jesus was making them feel wonderful about their fishing adventures. And this is when they cast their nets. They, Jesus had approached them and they were drying their nets. And this man, Jesus, told them to go fishing again and go deep. And they caught a massive amount of fish to the point that the boat began sinking. And he said, Simon, why do you doubt me? And Simon tells him, please go away from me, for I am a sinful man. That is Simon's identity. In Luke 22, when Jesus refers to Simon or Simon Peter, it is when Simon has been disobedient. Luke 22, 31 he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. And Simon was being rebellious. In the great recommissioning of Peter in John 21, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He was speaking to that sinful sign, that sinful part of Peter who had fallen away, who had stumbled and was disobedient to God. It's kind of funny. In John's Gospel, <laughs> 17 times John calls him Simon Peter. John couldn't decide whether he was being sinful or walking in the Spirit. So he said, I can't judge your heart, so I'll just call you Simon Peter and I'll cover it. But Simon was a man that made things happen. He stepped forward. He was assertive, not perfect, he would act. But as we see Simon Peter, his sinful identity, we see that raw material. Assertive. A man who wants to make things happen. When he was standing by God, by Jesus Christ, he was invincible. We all know the story when they come to arrest Jesus, correct? And he cut the servant's ear off. Do you think Simon was aiming for that guy's ear? Simon wasn't aiming for that guy's ear. Simon was ready to wade out in the midst of all of them soldiers and don't you ever think otherwise and kill every one of them. You're not going to take my Lord. And Simon had great revelation. God gave him knowledge that built the foundation of the church. Remember the passage that says, to you I will give the keys of the kingdom. And what was the statement that he said? You are the Son of God, the living God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus said, It is not by man's wisdom that you know this. It is by God. When the disciples, he explained to the disciples, and there were many at that time, those that were studying under him, and he said, I will be given over to the soldiers. I will be arrested, I will be crucified, and I will die. And I will be raised in three days. And many left. And he looked at Simon and said, Simon Peter, do you wish to leave? He says, never, Lord. You have the word of the living God. Eternal life. That is the revelation that Peter was given. You are the, the Christ. The son of the living God in Matthew 16, 13. Peter had the right raw material. He also had the right revelation. God had was molding him. God was shaping him. Peter was not perfect. Peter had remission in Matthew 6, 21, 16, 21. Jesus shared his death. And this is just shortly after Jesus. Uh, Peter says, you are the son of God. And then Jesus shares with him that I will be crucified. And Peter grabs him by the arm, takes him off to the side and says, God forbid it. I won't let it happen. Out of one side of this man's mouth, he's saying, you are God. Now the next side, don't you say that, Jesus. I don't care if you are God. I'm not going to let that happen. 
One of the harshest rebukes that could ever be heard by a Christian was stated to Peter at that time. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are tempting me. You are not looking at God's will, but man's will. Peter's love and his dependence on Christ was so that his thinking was slightly clouded. Satan had used Peter at this time for the same temptation that Satan had used on the Lord in the wilderness, evading the cross. We should not condemn Peter. Later he rejects our Lord three times, just as the Lord had said. A lot of people remember this and kind of hold it against him. I look at it as the fact that he was the only one that was around. All the rest of them flat out disappeared. But yet Peter kind of followed along when they arrested him and was just close enough to get himself in trouble. And he denied the Lord. That is a brave man. Because a cowardly man wasn't around. The brave man was hanging on the outside where he could be put into a position where he did need to deny the Lord. Many theologians believe that he had to deny the Lord or the church may have died. Because Peter, if Peter would have said, yes, I am one of them, they would have probably crucified him too. And I look at that and say, well, that's just all theory. Because he did deny the Lord and the Lord went and got him back. In John 21 The recommissioning of Peter. I, I have studied this passage and every time I study this passage I get something new and, and better and, and great out of this. Um, Peter denied Christ. He'd seen him in the upper room. Jesus told him the disciples to go to a hill in Galilee and uh, that he would come to them in Galilee. If there's any doubt in your mind whether Peter was the leader of the disciples, verse 21, afterward Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and Canaan, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Okay, Jesus has told them, we find out in Mark and the other gospel, to go to Galilee and wait there until I come. I will come to you. So what does Peter do? Verse 3. I'm going fishing. What do the other disciples say? We're going with you. You know, one duck quacks, they all quack. Yeah, we're going fishing. Jesus has told them to wait at the hill in Galilee and I will come to you. Peter waits for a while and then he leaves. I'm going fishing. The disciples go with him. As it continues on, they fish all night long. What do they catch? Water. Then you have this man standing on the shore and he says, Friends, haven't caught any fish, have you? I don't know about you, but if I'd been fishing all night and somebody said that, I'd have been a little bit on the perturbed side. Then John, hearing the voice, it's the Lord. Peter doesn't even ask twice. Grabs his clothes, jumps in, swims ashore. Jesus tells him, fish on the other side of the boat. Basically what you're seeing there is Jesus saying, I have called you to ministry. You ain't going to catch a fish ever if I don't want you to catch a fish. I want you to preach the truth. And Peter, right after him. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. The garment wrapped around him, jumped into the water. Disciples followed in the boat, towing a net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards when they had landing, they saw a fire burning coals were on and fish. There were fish on it. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Peter was recommissioned in verse 15. When they were done finish eating, we all know this one. We've heard it multiple times. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Do you agapao? Agape, we get the word from. Yes, Lord, you know I really like you. 
in the whole scenario, then feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He was recommissioned. But Peter in his, just being Peter, in verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was following them. Lord, when Peter saw him, Lord, what about him? Does he get to go fishing? It's not what it says, but that has to be what Peter's thinking. Jesus answered him, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that of you? Peter still had not learned. Peter had been recommissioned to preach the word. Did it work? First 12 chapters of the book of Acts is dedicated to Peter and the works of Peter. Peter at Pentecost preached before the Jews of Jerusalem with statements like, You have crucified the Messiah in front of all of these people. And 3,000 were won into the kingdom. The Sanhedrin arrested Peter and John and told them, do not preach Jesus. And, G and Peter standing before the Sanhedrin said, who am I to listen to, men or God? They beat them, turned them loose, and they immediately went to the temple and preached Jesus. Jesus, Peter is the one who confronted the man, Simon, who wanted to purchase the Holy Spirit. It was Peter who confronted the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. It was Peter in Acts 9 who was healing and raising the dead. It was Peter who first took the gospel to the Gentiles. Cornelius in verses 10 and 11, or chapters 10 and 11. He was a great leader, tremendous it was Peter that Paul sought out for counsel to know that the gospel that he was preaching was that of Jesus Christ. He was a great leader. And at the time of writing this book, 1 Peter, he is no longer Simon. He is no longer Simon Peter. He is Peter. There is a list there of his solid identity. As a leader... Peter had become submissive. In Matthew 17, the tax collector had come to Peter and Jesus and said, Do you pay your tax? Peter says, The king only pays to the strangers, not for his sons. Peter looking at Jesus saying, You are the king of kings, lord of lords. What should we do? Jesus said, Go catch a fish. Pay your tax. But you see that in 1 Peter in this epistle, in 2.13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority or the governors. This is the same man who uh, had the knife and was going to cut down all the Romans and all of the Pharisees' guards. Same man. He had learned submission. He had also learned restraint. Remember when he cut the ear off? He wasn't aiming for the ear. Good possibility the man ducked. He also learned that if you use the sword, you die by the sword. This is what we would call the death penalty. In 1 Peter 2, 23, 24. But if you suffer for doing good, 23. He committed no sin, speaking of Jesus, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. He learned restraint. He learned humility. Peter learned humility probably beyond any man's comprehension. Ask 
Jesus told him that he would be taken and arrested. He said, Lord, I'll never depart from you. They'll kill me first. I'll never deny you. And Jesus tells Peter that you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. You also have to remember in Luke's account of the gospel, good possibility Peter shared that with Luke, that it says that Jesus actually looked over at Peter when the cock crowed. Peter knew what he did. Did he learn humility? 1 Peter 5, verses 5. All of you, close yourselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud gives, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in, in due time. Did he learn grace? Matthew 8, 21. Peter says, I'm supposed to forgive my enemy seven times. Jesus said seven times, 70. 1 Peter 2, 3. Peter says, I have tasted the Lord and it is good. It is grace. Sacrifice. Right after the recommissioning of Peter, John 21. Verse 19, Jesus tells Peter, there is coming a time when you will be bound and not want to go and you will stretch out your arms and you will die for me. And you're not telling me that Peter forgot that right away. When God Jehovah, His Son, the Messiah, tells you that you're going to die for me, I would have to probably go hide myself somewhere so that I wouldn't die for Him. But Peter had to think about that. The rest of his ministry from the time Christ told him that. And you want to know how much it stuck in his head? Second Peter, his second epistle, he says, Second Peter 2, 23 and 24. Is that right? Nope. Second Peter 1, 14. Sorry. 114. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of, of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He knew. He knew that He was going to die for our Lord. Love. Peter's had love. Tremendous love. Because he denied Christ three times. And when you look at that passage in John where he says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you even like me? And all three times Peter said, Yes, yes, yes. Did Peter know love? Look at First Peter 4, verse 8. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-control, so that you can pray above all. Love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. But he also had faith. He was told in Mark 16 to go to Galilee, and I will come. Peter failed. Peter went fishing. God showed him that he was going to make every fish run away from Peter's net, and he wouldn't catch a cold if God didn't want him to. He didn't listen. But we see that also in verse, or first Peter 4.10. Each one should use his gate, use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Peter was molded. We can see that the writer of this epistle started out as a Simon who was nothing but earth went to Simon Peter, that God wanted him as a leader. And then at the writing of this epistle, when the church was being tremendously persecuted and Christians were dying, Peter knew to be restrained. Instead of just reacting to everything, be restrained. Peter knew humility because a leader will get proud. Remember Paul and his direct revelations? And he says, I've, I've got a thorn and I prayed to God that He'd remove His thorn, but I know that it keeps me from being proud. Peter didn't need that. 
Peter had done enough mistakes that he learned, I'm not proud. Peter knew grace. Instead of standing resolute dogmatically and in your face, leaders have a tendency that if a person fails, that he'll just run over them and leave you wounded in the ditch. But Peter had grace. Peter knew sacrifice. Leaders have a tendency not to sacrifice, but want everyone to sacrifice for them. But Peter knew sacrifice. Peter began his ministry knowing that there was coming a time that he would die for his Lord. He had faith. Leaders need love because they don't use people. Courage. Because if you're going to stand and fight the Roman army with a stick, you know you're going to have confrontation in your life. And that faith that says, I can believe God can do anything, any situation. Matthew 4.18, Jesus called a man named Simon. And he said, I will make you a fisher of men. Simon became a fisher of men. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus prayed, Simon, Satan has requested you to sift you as wheat, but I pray that you will stand in your faith. Luke 22, 61 and 62, Jesus had just denied Christ. The third time, the rooster crowed and Jesus looked at Peter and verse 62 said, Peter went and wept bitterly. Tradition says Peter's wife was crucified first to add agony unto him. Then when it came time to crucify Peter, he said, I am not worthy to die the way my Lord died. And they inverted the cross so that Peter was hung upside down to die on the cross. Peter was a man that we can look on with humor. We can look at him with contempt. We can look at him with anger. But we can also look at him as the leader of the apostles. I hope that over the next couple of weeks you will be here to see this man, to know this man, to know his love for the Lord. And I pray that as we study this and understand the man, we can look back and see that goofy guy who wouldn't wait on God, who rebuked God, who was rebuked by God and yet continued to be the leader of the church. Each of us can probably relate with Peter. I pray that as we continue forward that we'll move from our earthly identity, from our disobedient identity, and come to that rock-solid identity. Let us pray. Gracious, loving Father, Father, your ways are not our ways. And Father, you molded and conformed a man many years ago that became the leader of your church. Father, I pray that each of us here today will rest in the Holy Spirit and know that all things are possible through you who strengthen us. And that, Father, that we can rest in the assurance that what you did in Peter's life you can also do in ours. Father, I pray that we will continue to seek your truths from your scriptures and, Father, bow our knee to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we may become rock solid like Peter. Father, I pray that we will learn to be submissive. I pray that we can learn to be restrained. I pray that we are hu humble, Lord. I pray that we will remember the grace that has been given us and we will pass that grace on. Father, I pray that we will present ourselves as living sacrifices. Father, let us be 
the loving fellowship that you've called us to be. Father, let us stand firm in your truth with the courage that only comes from you. And Father, let our faith be that second to nothing. Father, I pray that we walk in the wisdoms that you give us. Father, I pray that we walk worthy of our calling. And Father, I pray that we will continue to hunger for your truth. Until that day that we see your son face to face, may we realize who it is we serve. In your son's precious name, amen.